Welcome back to Reasonable Disagreements, a podcast on law and policy with the Hoover Institution's Richard Epstein and me, Adam White of the American Enterprise Institute. Richard, how are you? I'm very fine, thank you. I'm heading off on a great adventure in the next day or so to Milan to go to an academic conference. So I will basically break out of the only American model. But of course, to do so, I had to get a COVID test this morning. Done very efficiently, I might say, in the corner of Central Park West and uh, 59th Street. Well, speaking of COVID, uh, we write or we record this podcast just the day after the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit issued a short order freezing in place the Biden administration's uh, COVID vaccine mandate that was issued through the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA. Richard, have you gotten a chance to look at the Fifth Circuit's order yet or the uh, the OSHA mandate? Well, um, looking at the Fifth Circuit order is not much of an achievement. It simply says they're grave questions. The choice of the word grave is, I think, somewhat ironic because one of the requirements that you have to do in order to meet the emergency mandates issues under OSHA is to show that there's a grave danger that can't be cured by lesser means. Uh, But what I did do was I looked at the public statement that was made by OSHA with respect to its situation and its overall conclusions. And then I went back and I read substantial chunks, not only the executive studies, but some of the inside of the particular order uh, to see whether or not the judge did or did not make sense. And I think, in effect, that the uh, mandate that they're trying to put place is, is skating on extremely thin ice and that it was really kind of amazing to see the sorts of issues that it did not want to cover and the way in which it started to cover the other kinds of issues. I mean, uh, the first thing I'm just going to mention very briefly is Uh, Every time you work on this issue, if you have information that's a week old, you're a little bit stale. And the number of studies that are coming out is absolutely legion. They come out from all sorts of places. It's very hard to integrate them. And if you're going to be an OSHA clone under these circumstances, you really have to continuously update. And on some certain key questions, for example, like whether or not natural immunity is or is not more effective than vaccine immunity for the mRNA virus, uh, they cite a study from August uh, this year, which is prehistoric times now. And there are literally dozens upon others, dozens of other studies which seem to point pretty clearly in the opposite direction. Uh, so if it turns out that natural immunities do work as a way of preventing this stuff, then it's going to be very difficult to say that there's a grave situation if you apply this order to them. And it's going to be very difficult to maintain a kind of an argument which says, well, it's impossible to distinguish people who do or do not have natural immunities from everybody else when there's a standard test which allows you to do this with some degree of precision. So that's just the first kind of thing. But if you're trying to talk about the heavy presumptions against emergency orders, if you misfire on one cylinder, it turns out it's very unlikely that you'll be able to make this up on anywhere else. So if you want my sense of this, Adam, I I think that the order uh, that you saw that saying I'm going to hold this in suspense was eminently sensible. And I think it's going to take a good deal of energy for the government to do it the other way. Do you have any opinion on it? Am I the only one who's read this miserable thing? Well, like you said, the order itself doesn't take very long to read, but I have looked through the the briefs so far and and some of the supporting materials uh, from the from 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 OSHA. The briefs, by the way, were filed. I, sh- I, want, I just want to point out by uh, by a friend of mine, Daniel Sir, at the Liberty Justice Center, along with uh, with others at the Pelican. You Institute mean the briefs policy. against this? Not the briefs yeah, that's the right. Government. The briefs against it. Yeah, the, the briefs for the Fifth Circuit staying the vaccine mandate. 
Um, but, but before I, I mean, I, I'm very, very skeptical of the viability of the OSHA mandate for a few reasons, most of them legal. But before we get to those, Richard, the way you just framed your own criticism sort of jumped out at me. I mean, you're right. The science, the the the, the sort of the stock of scientific knowledge continues to accumulate. And we're seeing more and more studies with the passage of time. But that strikes me as the kind of thing that administrators are in a better position than courts to evaluate. So how much of this case do you think really does turn on changes in science? And how much do you think of it will will will, will turn on, on the state of the law? Look, I have a not, I don't think it's an idiosyncratic fact, but I basically take the position that many good litigators do, which I'm not, um, which is that if you're going to argue a legal case that turns on scientific stuff, you have to know the science extremely well before you could figure out what's going to go on with respect to the law. And so it's not as though you have to be able to assemble the data yourself. That's not your job. Um, even it's not even your job necessarily to interpret it, but what you do have to do is to get some some kind of comprehensive review article or some kind of statement written by doctors or by uh, other lawyers who know more than you do and read those things through before you make any kind of a judgment. Um, and so in this particular case, they just did not do their homework on something which is absolutely key. If you're starting to talk about a rational basis test and uh, the government in its briefs, as you know, just oozes deference, Chevron deference when everything it wants to say. And then it turns out that they don't bother to take into account one of the things that is clearly relevant, uh, i.e., for example, recent studies with respect to natural immunities, what you can do is you could bring back to them the state calm the state farm metaphor, which says, oh, you're in real trouble on these cases if you raise some things that ought not to be mentioned and don't raise something that should be mentioned. Now, I'm a critic of much of what's going on with respect to state farm. I think in many cases, it's much too stringent a standard for going on here. But this admission is absolutely enormous. And there are other admissions of equal size. So, for example, one of the huge controversies in this particular area on which the government has taken a very decided position is whether or not certain kinds of treatments that are commonly available as generic drugs are in fact to be taken into account when you treat this. And the two drugs that get the greatest amount of attention are ivermectin, which seems to be the more recent favorite, and then HCQ hydroxychloroquine, uh, which was more favored, say, about a year ago. And uh, there are a number of studies, and there was an extremely impressive legal doctrine that was put together by a guy named Douglas Peterson, I think his name was, who was the attorney general uh, of the state of Nebraska, who had been asked by his public health official whether or not the evidence was sufficient so that she could unilaterally ban the use of these two drugs uh, because they were too dangerous to be allowed onto the market. And he wrote an enormous study, studied several hundred of these uh, enormous papers, looking at several hundred studies and so forth. And the only conclusion you could get is far from banning this stuff, what you really want to do is to actively promote it. Um, there were case after case after case, domestic and foreign, where it turned out, even though you could never get kind of controlled um, uh, clinical trials for reasons I'll explain in a second, where it seemed to have really remarkable kinds of improvement. And at the same time, what you do is see the CDC putting forward an ad say, oh, you want to take ivermectin? That's a drug you use for horses, not for people. Well, in certain doses, you use it for horses, but in other doses, you use it for people. And in fact, it's been used over 3 billion times for people. And they just dissed all of this stuff. And then you start to say, well, what are they going to do in this report? Uh, it turns out I didn't find anything there. So, you know, I did the word search. Ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine don't appear in the study. Well, if you think it's a grave issue, 
and you don't talk about other kinds of treatments that could be given, which would reduce the likelihood of death or harm, then you haven't done your homework. Um, if they wanted to get in there and to write something which says, look, we've looked at all these studies and we think they're wrong, that would be one thing if they gave their reasons, but they don't engage in the dialogue. And certainly with respect to the other stuff on natural immunities, uh, there was a very powerful letter that I read which pointed out study after study after study pointing the opposite way. And it turns out, again, what happens is the CDC refuses to engage. So it's one thing to say they write a comprehensive report, and they miss that or the other thing. It's another thing to say that they are directly challenged on issue after issue, which they refuse to address, and then wish to claim that there's a, a great emergency or a grave emergency. And that's a pretty tough standard, and I don't think they can do it. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into the hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin uh arguments here. I mean, I think at this point, it's pretty clear that HQ, HCQ did not uh, live up to its its billing the more the, the more the scientific research proceeded. I know less about ivermectin, but... Well, I, mean, I, I that think that's st- even wrong. I mean, this, it's a very complicated issue because one of the reasons you can't say that is that if you misapply the drug, it's not only it's going to be useless. And so the reason why clinical trials aren't so good is that you try to start everybody on a clinical trial on the same day. If you do not give either ivermectin or HCQ in the first day or two or three at the most of an infection, it turns out to be utterly useless. Um, and so what you have to do is when you look at these results, you have to control and to correct for that. Uh, but if you look at some of the Zelenko studies, for example, you know they seem to report very, very positive results. And if you get positive and negative studies, the thing to do is not to dismiss the positive studies because of the negative studies. The thing to do is to try to figure out what the subset of cases for which this is an appropriate medicine. And standardized double-blind clinical trials don't answer that particular question. In fact, they're very hard to do by double-blind clinical trials because you have such a narrow window. You need to get empirical reports from various places which have been gotten. Some are positive, some are negative. Uh, But if you find the positive ones, try to isolate the appropriate cases uh, rather than just simply say the thing won't work. And the same is true with respect to ivermectin. I I don't know. The arguments like this always sound more and more like, like the people who say, well, you know, don't knock communism because it's never really been tried in its perfect form yet. I just... Uh, no, it has been tried and yeah. it has worked. Uh, I mean, I, the question is where? And, and also there's a new drug that's coming out by Pfizer, which is supposed to be an antiviral, uh, which is the, the one that's out there, which Fauci recommends remdesivir is hopeless. Uh, but this new stuff has had very positive clinical trials. So again, if you have an antiviral, which is not a vaccine, and that drug is a substitute for treatment, you can't ignore it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, if, if we're getting it there, I totally agree with you. If we're getting an FDA approved antiviral pill that people can take, that's a that's a total game changer. And I do think casts a much different light on the OSHA rule. I mean, where I was going with this before, Richard, I was, I was trying to say, I don't even want to personally, I, I have no interest in getting into the the the, the now two year long argument over hydroxychloroquine and and the newer argument over ivermectin, because at the end of the day, I, I think that the case is not going to turn on that. I think maybe the availability of the of the of the pill, since the government itself is approving the pill, might cast a different light on this. But at the end of the day, even the the litigants themselves in the in the case, in the case for those who are looking it up, is titled BST Holdings versus OSHA. Um, it's down in the Fifth Circuit. Even they don't phrase their arguments in terms of the the alternative. Uh, therapies, because for them, these are straightforward legal issues, right? First, that that 
COVID-19, though it, it can be transmitted in the workplace, is not itself a workplace. I don't I want to say exactly how they, they put it, but it's not a, a workplace threat because it's not specific to the workplace, right? OSHA has authority over threats that, that originate or exacerbated in the workplace. And the litigants argue, well, that's just not the case here. They also say it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's not necessary um, because there are other... Um, uh, other treatments, right? No, I'm, I'm, I'm now riffing here because I was looking for the, the page on the brief. Oh, it's, they say it's not necessary because uh, the vaccines themselves or the, the weekly negative COVID test, they won't alone ensure that the unvaccinated employees don't spread the virus since they could obtain and spread the virus between their weekly tests. That's, they say, thus the ETS is not necessary because it's under-inclusive. That's the argument I'm looking for. Yeah, but so, actually- so, there are, so, there, so there, they have a number of legal arguments here that are tied pretty tightly to the, to the Occupational Safety Health Act. Don't you think that's the way that the case will get sorted out? Nope, I do not. Really? Um, I, I think it's much more complicated than that. For example, if the only issue is whether or not a workplace will exacerbate uh, somebody who has a virus by giving them greater opportunities to spread it, um, you can't get yourself a summary judgment on that kind of question. What you have to do is to start to look at the empirical evidence on this. And the empirical evidence is that as best anybody can tell, after an enormous amount of looking, nobody who's gotten a natural immunity has ever reinfected any other person. Uh, so so it's given that kind of record, you can say, hey, hey, this thing is not, um, this thing has got to be stopped. It's a grave threat. So that's a huge portion of the population, remember, because several of the cases, including the firemen in New York, are pushing hard on the natural immunity line rather than on the total line. And if you're doing that, saying people have already had COVID and can present with positive antibodies, it's going to turn on the science. The other argument I think is, is, is also extremely important. There's an increasing body of evidence which says, that two things. One, if you have the mRNA virus, you can still transmit the virus or vaccine, you can still transmit the virus. And two, if you have the mRNA vaccine, you can still receive the virus. So essentially, there's people are saying uh, that given the way these things work, they don't give you the kind of protection that they're supposed to do. And, and if you want to intervene with this, then you have to show that your particular system is going to be effective. There is, in fact, another argument. I can't say that it's true, but I certainly can say that it is, it is not beyond the reason is that if, in fact, what happens is you give people mRNA virus, it means that they can get infected, but they will keep it asymptomatic. But if it's asymptomatic and they have it, they could transfer it to somebody else. If, in fact, the virus essentially is can grow at a higher level because the vaccine shields you from adverse consequences, the carriers, the so-called super spreaders, may be more dangerous if they get the vaccine than if they don't. There are at least a very couple of very serious scientists who claim that that kind of an effect takes place. So the argument then is that you're not stopping the particular problem here. You're spreading the problem. Uh, what you, The only way you could stop the problem is to have the asymptomatic cases that are not beefed up by the vaccine. So if you're an asymptomatic symptomatic transfer of of these things or giver of these kinds of mistakes, Uh, it's better that you do it with low dosages than you do it with high dosages. So I don't think those arguments are particularly effective. I mean, I think the really comprehensive medical testimony, you have to get there. And, you know, you don't give the testimony yourself, but you get somebody to write the affidavits and you, you put them on there. And I think, in fact, if you read that evidence, it's pretty devastating. What's so striking about it is there seems to be no 
evidence whatsoever that anybody inside OSHA looked at it. You, know, you hear Joe Biden constantly saying, I'm just a man interested in the science. These are not good scientific documents. They're totally amateurish. You know, I, I think my view is the Fifth Circuit will wind up in a similar and basically in the same place that you're suggesting, but by a much, much different way. I don't think they're going to wade very deep at all into scientific debates. I think that rather they're going to focus. I mean, just looking at the 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 short order they put out, they said there are grave statutory and constitutional issues with the mandate. And I think ultimately that's where the mandate is going to fall short. And part of it, I think a big part of the story is that the Biden administration's administration of these laws uh, is, is undermining their own credibility. As the petitioners point out in the case, the Biden administration has not been in a rush to put this out. It's an emergency standard that, they, that the petitioners say has taken OSHA over eight weeks to finalize. Um, and that's eight weeks following everything, you know, the, the last year or I, I guess 10 months of the Biden administration. Their own approach has really cast doubt on the notion that there is an emergency calling out for under the OSHA Act, uh, an emergency uh, temporary standard. And, and furthermore, I think trying to assert such broad powers under this statute, um, separate from the much broader and open-ended powers of the CDC, which themselves, of course, ran into real mm-hmm. trouble with the uh, with with the the the, the, the foreclosure the um, eviction moratorium. Yes. Well, I think. Yeah, I think the Biden administration is going to find itself in a very, very similar position here, uh, stretching the bounds of statutory mandates. And I think the courts are going to push back on. I also think that getting back to the agency process here, I think that the that the administration's approach to these issues is going to land this administration in a position that the previous administration knew very, very well, where the courts just expressed fundamental doubts about the seriousness of the process. Um, again, I don't think it's going to require the courts to get into arguments over uh, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. I just think that looking at this, this does not look like a straightforward, good faith, transparent process that the statute requires. And so I do think that the Fifth Circuit is more likely than not to rule against the mandate. And if this goes up to the Supreme Court, I think a lot of the questions that the court has raised about the CDC eviction moratorium are going to be very similar to the ones that they'll raise about this standard and questions that they will raise time and time again in the three years ahead on on major efforts by the Biden administration to assert unprecedented powers under much more uh, narrow statutes. Look, uh, let me say the following thing, which helps support your side of the case, because what I'm arguing is the way I generally try to argue cases when I'm involved in these things. But one of the most striking situations is that some of these findings were made when we were on the upcycle with respect to the Delta variation. If you look at what's going on, the number of cases in most places are sharply downward. And so somebody could simply come up with the argument is you put this out when there were, say, 2,000 deaths per day in the United States associated in some way with COVID. We're now down to a tenth that amount. Uh, This is not the kind of emergency that you're talking about. Emergencies are like hurricanes and floods and so forth. This is a kind of a cyclical situation. And if, in fact, what you call an emergency in this particular case counts as an emergency, it's going to be a perpetual emergency. 
because there will never be a set of facts, given the cyclical nature of these viruses and the certainty of some degree of mutation, where we would be entirely COVID-free. And so therefore, what happens is you're saying you could do this forever. I think that's a very powerful argument. I'm not trying to be exclusive in what I say, but I do think, in effect, if you want to claim that something is grave, uh, in order to show that, you have to say that there's no other lesser means that we could use in order to combat it. And these other arguments are essentially designed to say it can't be that grave because these, these, all of these alternatives. And it's not that they sort of misevaluate them. We're not asking the courts to kind of look at the fine points of this. They don't discuss them. I mean, that's a very different kind of situation. Their attitude is we don't have to talk about treatments um, because the vaccine is the sole thing. And then when somebody tells you that a vaccine uh, is not going to work, do what you promised it will do. It's not a safe vaccine. There are side effects in many of these cases. Um, one of the things that happens with vaccines, for example, is it can sometimes lead to the situation where they're blood clots. Um, one of the things also, I don't know whether this is a statutory argument, Adam, but I will raise it anyhow. Back in early September, the um, CDC changed with very little notice the definition that it gave of a vaccine. Uh, the earlier definition always stressed that it was a derivative of some product that was out there in nature. Um, and so it was a diluted form of immunity that you got. Uh, MNRA doesn't work that way. It's basically not a weakened form of anything. It's a direct combatant. So what they did is they got rid of the old language and they put the new language in, which simply says, it's any kind of chemical that will protect you against an illness. It doesn't tell you anything about the mechanism. So one of the questions you could ask is, why do you broaden this particular definition? Is it only to do this? And have you run any hearings to ask yourself whether or not uh, the long-term effects of some kind of major change in techniques carry with it residual losses? So can this, in fact, well, just ask you the legal question. Suppose somebody were to come up into show uh, that we think there's a substantial fact that if you have to take this thing two or three times, that is the MRN, a virus, uh, there's some dangerous, some long-term effects on some subject population. And somebody just gets that in the record and it's true. Is that something that the uh, Fifth Circuit should take into account when they're trying to figure out whether or not this is an emergency authorization or not? Or do you ignore it? Well, I think part of that is wrapped up in, in which record we're talking about. Do you mean if somebody newly introduces that now or if they find it in the record that was before the agency? Because, I mean, that is an important limit on what the court's doing here. It's an agency case, and obviously yeah. the record itself is limited because this is an interim final rule, so they haven't gone through – agency hasn't gone through notice and comment in advance. Well, but I, I, mean, I, yeah, I, I can't conceive of how you would approve an emergency order if there is new information of direct relevance in a fast-moving field uh, that has been gathered in the two or three months since this final order was prepared. Uh, I think I, they have to update. I, I, I mean, mean I, suppose it turns out you found out that these viruses seem to be very fatal if you give a third dose and that the booster is deadly. Well, maybe they pull it back, but the Biden administration, as best I can tell, has been absolutely indifferent to the state of play with respect to the evidentiary record. And I think that itself is a ground for reversible error. Richard, I feel like I feel like you're going out of your way to do justice to the name of the podcast because I keep trying to agree with you on the uh, on the basic outcome of the case. But I feel like every argument that you've been raising so far is is, is pushing me in the other direction, right? On this this question of of uh, new evidence. I mean, it's hard to answer that in the abstract, right? Because you have to ask, well, what is the new evidence? Where is it coming from? But I don't know. I, I don't know that I would necessarily want the courts to give full weight to every sort of scientific study that just 
happens to get attached to a brief that gets filed in the case. I mean, the courts just are not well suited for that. And I I don't want the courts to become our de facto medical boards. I do want our, our actual medical boards or, or agencies mm-hmm. like OSHA to do a good job of their jobs. Um, and so I'm I'm, and I'm, it's not clear to me that they, that they are doing a good job of their jobs here. Yeah, but, but I'm going to put it again. The, what the court would say is, here's all this new stuff of evidence coming out. We can't evaluate it, but we know that you haven't. And we just yeah. take a quick look at it, and it's material, and it's pretty voluminous. Um, you can't be using science that's three months out of date in the field, which seems to turn over every two weeks. Um, that's the... That might be a good reason to to remand the issue back to the agency and maybe even put them on a clock to come up with a, a new or a revised rule within a certain number of days. I'm not sure, though, that in that case it would be right for the court to stay the existing rule pending uh, the, the remand. I mean, it, and if actually, you know this, that it's wrong. Well, but who's when you say you know? I mean, I, I didn't take you to be creating a hypothetical where everybody knows that that, that it's wrong. I think what you what you said was. Some people have information that they think casts doubt on. No, I think it's but, stronger than that, Adam. Well, you think of that, but, I, but no, it's no, not no. I mean, having read the testimony that's given, it doesn't read like it's tentative. And so, for the, for example, on the question of natural immunity, somebody cites 50 studies, all of which are ignored by the government. And they cite one study which they run, which is completely preposterous because it doesn't have the right comparison. I mean, I'm talking about very egregious griefs of, of information. I'm not talking about close cases in which you could go one way or another. I'm talking about situations where there's a wholesale abnegation of duty and that it gets worse the longer you start to neglect the uh, the new information that starts to come out. Like, for example, this new antiviral drug from Pfizer, uh, we've had information about this for 24 hours. And I mean, that's a big enough issue that you can be a judge to say if we have a... And they, they say, we have an 89% cure and effectiveness rate is what they claim. I don't know whether it's true or false, but I can't believe that if that is true, you would want to enforce this order. Uh, when well, the it, depends vaccine- on how fast, it depends on how fast the, vac- the, the pill would be ramped yeah. up for production, distributed. Are we? Is the government paying to give it out for everybody for free? Well, are, I mean, it doesn't have employees? to, but I mean, they've managed to approve, which I'm against, by the way, the vaccines for children from 5 to 11 in record time. The FDA, in my view, actually goes too fast with some of these approvals. I'm not saying it's true with respect to this one, uh, but the whole system with respect to vaccines and checks usually takes a 10 to 15 years to get the long-term effects on this. And all of these vaccines that are being put into place have had very short time period. And it's extremely difficult to be confident about anything um, on a vaccine type level, uh, particularly with a novel technology on the basis of short-term stuff. And so I think, in effect, people raise those sorts of things to mandate something which is uncertain. There's not even clear, just to give you how bad this is, I'm not sure in normal times you could have even gotten approval for the mRNA virus with the tests that they've done. And to say we're going to go say, okay, leave that on the market, which I'm perfectly comfortable with. Now we're going to mandate it. I don't think you could take the two leaps at one time. I think the mandate requires a much higher standard of confidence in the medical record uh, than does the the mere approval where you get individual doctors and individual patients trying to figure out for themselves whether or not to do it. Some people will be counterindicated. Some people will not. But a mandate doesn't draw these kinds of distinctions. And so I think just on that ground alone, one ought to be extremely hostile to the way in which the administration has been moving. So, so 
Our, our discussion so far, I mean, one last aspect of this, sh- this issue I want to explore, or this case, uh, you know, our discussion so far is focused on how should an agency go about its work? How should the court go about its work? But even just focusing on the courts, there's two levels to the question, at, at least two levels to the question. One is, should the court affirm or reject this rule? But then the question, the, the, the second question, and it, it comes first chronologically, is should the court issue a stay of the rule while litigation is pending? And this has become more and more of a feature of uh, our administrative state, regulation, politics in general. Our, anytime the executive branch or an agency does anything, you immediately have somebody go to a district court and seek not just judicial review, but a preemptive freeze. Um, now, I, I want to be really careful in how I frame this because I'm still serving on the Presidential Court Commission, and one of the issues before the commission is the so-called shadow docket or the emergency docket where issues like this rise to the Supreme Court. And so I, I'm going to steer clear of that, but just focusing on the lower courts, the district judges especially, but even maybe the courts of appeals. I have to admit, I've litigated in the past, and I've, I've sought TROs and preliminary injunctions and so on. But sitting back and watching the system go, I'm not, I'm not sure that the district court's tendencies or the courts of appeals' tendencies to produce immediate temporary relief is necessarily the best way to run a judicial system. I mean, you think about the classic conception of the courts in Federalist 78 and the idea that they're going to be a a passive institution. They're going to receive cases. The courts will. They're not going to pick and choose their cases. I don't know, Richard. I, I think that the more that we see preliminary relief and especially nationwide preliminary relief, which is not I don't, I don't think that's the case here in the Fifth Circuit, but I don't know. There's something sits uneasy, I think, with the classic conception of the passive, reactive judicial role. Um, but I'm still, I'm still chewing on this myself. Does, does, how do you think through that aspect of this? Not just whether the Fifth Circuit should strike down the OSHA rule, but whether they ought to freeze it in place before the litigation even gets off the ground. Um, look, I am a very much of two minds with respect to this. It depends on what I think to be the underlying merits of a particular case. Let me talk about the pipeline cases and the Obama presidential cases in which this issue has arisen all the time. Um, in the typical pipeline case, what you do is you have a pipeline that's either been built or about to be finished or in operation, and somebody comes up with an argument which says, well, there's a one in X chance, very tiny, that this will leak, and a one in Y chance, given the X chance, uh, that will actually cause some damage to an Indian or Native American reservation. I am deeply hostile to the use of any kind of injunction under those particular circumstances, because I think in the absence of some kind of immediate threat, you allow the particular thing to go forward, see how the information accumulates with respect to its operation. And then when you see something that's close to an imminent peril, which was the common law standard for an injunction, uh, then you start to act. And there's never been an oil pipeline case that remotely deals with that type of situation. On the other hand, I just got flatly busted uh, with respect to a preliminary injunction to try to stop somebody from cutting down the trees in the Jackson Park, a world-class monument, uh, to put up at some future time the Obama Presidential Center. Uh, This is a case in which those trees cannot be fixed. Uh, You take them down, it takes years upon years to build them up. The government says, oh, we could put saplings up. A sapling takes 50 years to mature. 
if it matures at all. And it's going to take you several years before you could start to get there, but you won't get an old growth forest. In those cases, I think a financial delay on the one side, vis-a-vis the protection against wholesale destruction on the other, the case is easy in the opposite way. So I tend to think, and here's what I would say, is that I believe that you can and should use preliminary injunctions, but I think that the standard should be reasonably high. And that's one of the reasons why it is in this particular case, what I do is I try to stress all the alternatives and all the downsides and all the scientific advantages, because I'm not trying to make this case on the grounds that, oh, it just may kind of turn out this way or that way. What I'm trying to do is to say that the vast bulk of scientific opinion is on the other side of the Biden administration on these things. And if you just look at the overall record, that's a case in which you want to be safe rather than sorry. Uh, The Seventh Circuit has a standard now, which, you know, it's like all these standards. It can't be wrong, yet it has to be infuriating. So their standard is you have to have a strong case to make out a preliminary injunction motion. But by strong, they obviously do not mean by a preponderance of the evidence. They mean kind of substantial evidence, sort of like 30 percent or 40 percent, somewhere in that area. I think that's about right. But I think in this particular case, you get there. Should it be national or not? I think when you're dealing with viruses where the regional variations cannot be significant, I think, in fact, you can do that sort of thing. I also believe, by the way, that the Supreme Court should be quite aggressive in willing to look over these things so as to give it a greater sense. So if there's a preliminary stay, for example, here, I would certainly allow the uh, government an immediate opportunity to go up to the Supreme Court to see what could be done. So I think that's the way in which to handle it. But I am sufficiently troubled by this record and sufficiently troubled by everything that has happened in the entire treatment of COVID over the last two years, uh, that I'm much more sympathetic in this case, even though I'm very reluctant, as I previously mentioned, to do it in other kinds of cases. Yeah, I agree. Looking at, at this case and what's been filed in the case so far, the the the, the petition, the the motion for emergency relief, the the the, the affidavit that was attached to the uh, to the motion, I think the the Fifth Circuit was right to freeze things in place and allow the litigation to proceed. And and again, the the Biden administration itself took weeks and weeks and weeks to formulate this. Uh, a couple more weeks. Um, especially given the current trends, the current trend lines on COVID um, make me comfortable with what the court did. Richard, we don't have as much time as I expected for the second case, but let's talk about it just very briefly. Um, uh, We are recording this episode on November 8th, and five days ago on November 3rd, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. This is a challenge to New York's uh, effective prohibition against uh, carrying uh, handguns outside of the home. Um, Richard, you go first. What do you think of the case, and and how's the court going to decide? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to understand what's at stake in the case, and it's the statute which says, essentially, uh, the burden is upon the gun owner in order to establish that he has a good cause for using it. Am I got that about right, Adam? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a very very open ended standard that leaves, you know, while it leaves in place sort of a nominal possibility that you're going to get this license, uh, it, it makes it extremely difficult. Yeah, yeah, it leaves immense discretion in the hands of the administrators and, and hard to challenge it. Good cause is not defined. I think it's flatly inconsistent with the Heller standard which essentially is that you have to have intermediate scrutiny in order to apply this with the burden of proof being on the state to explain why this person doesn't have it. So if the state were to come forward and say, look, 
we have a rule which says insane people cannot do this. Prior felons can't do it. Uh, people who have mental illnesses can't do it. That's going to be just fine. But I think in this particular situation where they say you have to prove why it is that you're so special and above and beyond everybody else is not going to work because the forces on behind the Heller will say the whole purpose of Heller was to normalize the use and carrying of guns. So that's the first point. The second point, I think, is if you're going to try and get some kind of a standard like this, it's not going to work to try to put it in place as an abstract matter. Uh, the way in which this becomes more effective is they actually do use the other standards and they keep the guns out of the hands of the three or four types of people who should not have them. And then they can show that uh, the people who get through that particular maze still are extremely dangerous with respect to the way in which they work. And I don't think they could make that because if I had to guess, and you looked at the empirics, the number of people who actually have guns with permits are a tiny, tiny fraction of the people who kill. I think for the most part, that is going to be a part of the population um, which essentially is illegal users of guns. And if that's the case, then it seems to me that they can't carry their burden of proof. So, you know, as you mentioned in the earlier thing, you like a nice, clean legal hook on which to turn something. We all agree that if you could have it. And I think they got the burden of proof in the wrong direction with the the good cause standard. And so I'm pretty confident it's going to be reversed. They're not going to tell them you can't get any statute that you have to pass. They're not going to tell them that distinctive conditions in New York City may not matter. But what they are going to do is say, you got to come up with something better than you have. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd say, and I was asked about this case last month, and I, I gave a presentation on it. And, and I focused on the good cause standard as well, because I really do think that that and I, I I can't remember who I was speaking to about the case, what audience it was, but I said you really need to think about this case not just in line with the Second Amendment precedents, but the other cases that the court has heard in recent years on the administrative state. And you have a number of justices who not only favor the the, the individual rights of the Second Amendment, but also are very very wary increasingly wary of, of totally open-ended statutory powers that are very wary of, of arbitrary exercises of discretion or the, the, the risk of abuse of arbitrary powers by administrators. And here you have the combination of those cases. And, and, and because New York puts the burden of proof in a very nebulous way on the applicants, I think that's going to cut against them. I do think that the court will end up end up ruling against the state in this case and, and in favor of the applicant. I'll be very, very interested to see exactly how they phrase the opinion to see what kind of discretion New York might be able to exercise. Uh, I don't think they're going to order the state to grant a license to the plaintiff, um, but I do think that uh, I do think that 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 New York is going to have to rethink how they approach this. Looking over the transcript, though, a lot of the questions there that were raised on both sides of the case, they're very, very difficult questions about context, both historical context, how should we understand older statutes, you know, old prohibitions. I think it was Justice Sotomayor cited or invoked the old prohibitions in the states against concealed carry. And Paul Clement points out, well, those were passed at a time when open carry was largely legal. And therefore, we ought to understand that prohibitions against concealed carry were justifiable because the states knew if you were, if you had a right to carry openly, but you're carrying it concealed, you know, there was a risk that you, you were up to no good. And so how judges could parse that kind of history and how they, they could draw lines 
about regarding sensitive places over and over again, the justices and the advocates were talking about sensitive places. Is a college campus a sensitive place? Well, it depends on what kind of campus. Is it an open campus or a non-campus like NYU, or is it a more traditional campus like Columbia? What about football stadiums? What about other things? And I, while I agree with with Heller and, and, and the McDonald case, and I think New York is on the wrong side of this case, there does have to come a point where states and localities are going to have some discretion to make prudential judgments that the courts really aren't well suited to, to second guess. And I don't think even among the justices inclined to rule against New York here, I think if it were a, a more complicated case, a less sort of cut and dry case than New York statute makes it, I do think that you'd get uh, sort of interesting disagreements, even among the conservative and libertarian justices. I think you're absolutely But I don't think that's this case. Those would be reasonable disagreements to take a very original phrase. And essentially, what kinds of places should be safe harbors and what kinds not? Uh, You basically say there are two problems and you can't solve any of them, either of them easily. One is you make categorical judgments. And the first categorical judgment, you keep these things out of kindergartens and out of university campuses. And then the second place says, well, this university campus is really different from some other kind of university campuses. Or in this particular case, it turns out there have been a spate of robberies and maybe having some concealed carry weapons would slow this down. I don't think you're going to be able to avoid those cases. So the advice that I have give myself, and I think you agree with this, is I'm going after the low handling, handing fruit. I will not write an opinion which says that you can't do anything other than certain narrow categories. And you would allow time, place, and manner restrictions with respect to gun. But we want to see something about it. And then what would I want to see? I would not want to use a rational basis test. I think that's precluded by Heller. But I would want to say that they've done a reasonable inquiry and have substantial evidence to support the distinction they've made. And I would like them to write something saying why it is that they didn't use anything narrow or why they had to go this broad and so forth. Uh, to sort of build it up. I think a, a record on a case like this really would make a kind of a difference. Uh, that is exactly why in the COVID case, I think the government did so badly. It didn't try to make any kind of a record at all. And I think it would be a very salutary thing to strike this statute down and then for the New York to pass immediately the kind of statute that is perfectly legitimate to pass, talking about the categorical exclusions of certain kinds of people from the from this the, the must-carry rules and so forth. Um, and if you did that, um, I think it would be we'd be in a better place. I think this situation is completely intolerable. Let me ask you one thing, Adam, because I'm not even sure. Does anyone actually claim there's a positive correlation between the New York rules or the Chicago rules and the level of crime. I mean, I'm very dubious about the fact because illegal users have a better chance of succeeding if there are very few legal users with concealed weapon. That's the old theme of John Lott that people have attacked it constantly, but I don't think they've disproved it as being totally irrelevant. And so if there's no empirical evidence that they give that this thing actually works to help in places where there are high crime rates, then I think they're going to be in double trouble. Yeah, I, I mean, the comparisons are always tricky, right? Because it's not just what laws are on the books, but how are they enforced? What more might they do? But I, I've, at oral argument, uh, I can't remember who pointed it out, but somebody did point out, you know, the, the the comparison shouldn't be just New York and Chicago. Chicago did come up, but also Dallas and other other cities where the gun laws are are, are much less restrictive and they they aren't nearly as dangerous a place as, as say Chicago is. And so, you know, I think the judges are going to be the justices will be mindful of that. But it's always, again, it's, it's always a question of of ultimately what's their judgment to make 
um, what's the role of the court here and, and, and how much deference should they give to, to the political branches of our government? Um, um, and my final words, I would say 6-3 striking it down. And I think that's going to be the two conservative wings together against the three liberal justices. I agree completely. So what a way to what a way to, to wrap up this conversation. Uh, well, okay. Well, Richard, I hope you have a wonderful trip. And uh, when we come back for the next episode, you can uh, tell us all about it and get out the slideshow and show us a lot of pictures. The slideshows um, on radio always work. That's right. But um, thanks, as always, to our, to our listeners for tuning in. And please join us again for the next episode of Reasonable Disagreements. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.